welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 16, States of Consciousness, part one. Pleasure, pain, addiction, and recovery. Uh, welcome, everybody. Friends of Integral Recovery or the journey of Integral Recovery are those who are on the journey or thinking about the journey or got a flat or wherever you're at or you know somebody who needs to start the journey. <laughs> welcome. This is podcast uh, number 16. And we've, you know, we've been doing a, uh, we've been going over the integral map and then we've had some, some, uh, detours or, or, or stops along the way, but today we were going to talk about the states of consciousness. Remember, this, this whole model is built on Ken Wilber's uh, aqua map, and that stands for all, or that means, it's an acronym for all quadrants, all lines, all levels, all s- stages, all states, and all types. And we've done uh, the first three. We've done uh, the four quadrants. We've done uh, lines, uh, multiple intelligences, and we've done stages, which is essential probably to get into all of this stuff again, because as we learn the language, we can use it to just deepen the subject in ways that were never before possible. And we are going to talk about states of consciousness and how they figure in to the journey of integral recovery. So first, let me just introduce myself. I'm John Dupuy, uh, CEO of iWake Technologies, author of uh, Integral Recovery, the book. And this is Dr. Bob Weathers and hey, hey, Doug Prater. Hey, right. everybody. Great Good to, to see you all. <laughs> yeah, and this is, uh, we, we love doing this stuff. And this is always, uh, at least in my, my case, it's always a high point of my week or whenever we get together and discuss these things. So um, let's, let me just start with um, uh, talking about states of consciousness and... I suppose as long as we're alive, we are having some kind of state of consciousness. And states of consciousness can be happy, sad, depressed, anxious, bored, despairing, uh, stimulated, in unity flow mode. I mean, you guys got any other suggestions? You covered the range. <laughs> well, I don't think of it all. I think there's all kinds of things. You yeah. can be hungry. You can be horny. You can be craving <laughs> drugs, craving. I mean, that's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, states of utter mm-hmm. self-rejection and shame and despair. You know, and I'm talking about some of the dark sides of, yeah. of, of addiction and depression and, uh, you know, being a human. I mean, we all, we all experience these things. Most of us do anyway, as far as I can tell. And one of the, one of the things about states is they come and they go, right? They're like the clouds in the sky. When I was teaching this in, in the wilderness um, to my students uh, years ago, I would talk about, well, let's look up at the sky. Let's see what's going on there. You know, well, we've got clouds. And, they, you know, and when I finish this, this you know, four-hour class, and everybody goes, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, those clouds will be different. They'll be changed. They'll be gone. There's bugs. There's airplanes. There's birds flying by. You know, all of these things. And you can say that the sky is like human our awareness, consciousness. It's big, it's open, 
it's always there and all kinds of different things happen. You have, you know, the sun's moving through, you know, you have different times of day, different times of night, moon, uh, all this stuff is going on in this big emptiness. And those are, those are akin to states of consciousness. And you know, it's always changing and fluctuating. So what if you, for example, well, anyway, I'll, I'll put on the brakes there. So you look at, a, look at a pool, look at a surface of water and see all those clouds reflected up in the sky. And depending on whether that uh, puddle is clear and undisturbed or a mess of, of waves and froth, you will see something different. Yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah, Bob, uh, Dr. Bob, you got anything you want to add? Oh, to? I, I love that image. You remind me of Plato's analogy of the cave. You probably remember that. That's a great image, a contemporary image of the pool. I think I prefer that. That's good, Doug. Yeah, it's very evocative. <clears throat> and... And, you know, one of the problems with, well, how this figures into, you know, getting back to talking about addiction is that if you've been suffering from a lot of negative states, okay, and if you have the um, the genetic predisposition to get hooked on this stuff, you know, and most of the people that I've talked to over the years, and it's been a lot of people always asking that, you do have a history of addiction or alcoholism in your family, and I can't remember the case where they didn't. It was always seemed to be prevalent. And, uh, you know, they say if you have, you know, two grandparents or two parents, you're like eight times more uh, predisposed to become addicted. And some people don't have it. And some people, they taste, you know, do substance that they just hate it. They don't even go back to it. So there's different types of people. But for those of us who are, do have that predisposition and we're living through a lot of bad stuff, bad states, which chronic stress, you know, can be anxiety, shame, depression, uh, self-hatred, all of these things. And then you discover drugs or alcohol and you have the right brain chemistry to that stuff really works. It's like you get this flood of, oh my God, I just came home. It's so wonderful. So you get this altered state. Said, I've never felt like this good in my life. I can go up and talk to a woman. Hey, baby, you know, I couldn't do that before. I can play music. I can get on the stage or whatever your problems are. And you think you found the key. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, you kind of have for a little bit, but very soon, uh, you know, and, and I've asked my students and, you know, what were you looking for when you, you're using drugs? Well, for, you know, relief from pain, you know, happiness, fun, excitement, this, that, the other, you know, all these positive things. And I asked the other question is what, what, um, what, what did you get ultimately? And they go effing hell. You know, so it starts, you know, the honeymoon phase and then that goes into just deepest, deepest despair. And the crazy thing is, you know, you think it's like if you're going out with an abusive jerk, you know, and he's beating you up and blah, 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 or she is beating you up or however that works out. And you go <laughs> over, you know, you get a restraining order or whatever, you, you know, but that's the thing with addiction. You can't stop. You're going out with this you know, brutish jerk who's bam, bam, just, just taking you out and you can't stop. You have to go back, hit me some more, hit me some more, hit me some more. Weird thing. But those who you have, 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 of us who have suffered from, we know what I'm talking about. So that's, that is the, the lure of, of stages of relief, and happiness that drugs bring on very effectively. Okay. You can go to church and it's like, what in the hell is he talking about? Or, you know, you go to other things. And I mean, I'm talking as uh, from the perspective of a young person and nothing's ever really worked. You know, you really never found your groove and all of a sudden, you know, you take a drug or you have a drink or something and all of a sudden this whole new world opens up and it's very hard not to keep listening to the siren songs and hit it to the rocks. I would like to throw in here as a general kind of 
orienting guide that we were talking right now about the common states of everyday consciousness that we all experience all the time. And over the next couple episodes, we'll elucidate uh, much deeper than that on the path of waking up um, because states encompass all of these things. But these ordinary waking states of consciousness that we're discussing right now, as John has been very clearly explaining, are oftentimes both the cause of and learning how to manage them is a solution to or one of the best ways to deal with the things that lead us down the path of addiction addiction in the first place yeah we may get there in the next 10 minutes that's i was warming up to that but yeah so um so dr bob i was thinking about uh, i loved what you just introduced john i'm just kind of in receiving mode right now but i was thinking about how it is that the addictionologist in your state utah kevin mccauley whom you know talks about uh, addiction this way uh, is that I can, if I'm an addict, uh, I can stop using, but what I can't do is stop craving. Yeah. Right, right, right. I like that distinction. And anybody that's been addicted and I have, and uh, many of our listeners have really understand the truth of that. Yeah. You can physically stop. You can just by dint of will or higher power or whatever you can stop, but working on the craving at a biological, much less psychological or existential level, like last Last presentation by Guy Duplessis, he's looking at it from an existential perspective, is that 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 wants to be filled, that doesn't go away, even if I literally stop using whatever my substance is. It's the craving that's the key, it seems like to me. And and in nine out of ten cases, the cravings are going to win. You know, uh, if they keep just wearing you down, wearing you down. And I was, I was watching this uh, crazy show, Outsiders, and the, the sheriff, he, he looks so pathetically wretched. He's like, you know, I'm sure he's just a great actor, but he's, he's, he's addicted to oxycodone. And he gets, you know, he keep, people keep giving it to him, you know. And he's getting ready. He's, he's dividing it all up so he has it for the next few days. And he's in the bathroom and his child goes, uh, Dad, are you Okay. Dad, and he opens up, and the little kid goes, Dad, are you sick? And he just goes, no, I'll be right outside. I'm okay. And he takes it and flushes it. Oh, I want it again. But he's still he's getting worked by the cravings. And all these traumatic things are happening. And the more stressful events are happening, the more the cravings rise at the same time. So these are some of the negative states of, of that happen in, in addiction that are just, uh, just hellish. And if you haven't experienced them, um, I mean, you you know, you have to take people's words for it and, and listen uh, empathetically, em, empathetically, empathetically, that's the right word. Anyway, with great empathy. And, and then you can kind of start to feel it in your body and understand what people are going through or think about your own times when you, you know, you've had this desiring that's overpowering. John, I want to dive in here. There's, there's a common misunderstanding in the like public, but there's also uh, this understanding bleeds into the therapeutic community, it seems like to me. And ironically, and unfortunately, even into the addiction recover, uh, recovery community, and, and all three of us will have run into this, is that there's a mistaking the craving that you're talking about right now for being something that we can control um, with our executive function, with our frontal cortex, let's say. And we'll talk more into this as we go along, I'm sure today, uh, as we have discussed before. But that my understanding um, in kind of the cutting edge of addiction uh, uh, research, especially with the advent of brain scan research, is what's clear is that the craving is rooted in the subcortical range, which is to say, it's what in the old days we would call the unconscious. I don't have conscious control over my amygdala. Uh, I do indirectly, and, and the skills that we're talking about here, training 
self-regulation skills, including eye awake technology and meditation, is a way to begin to calm that. But in terms of just willing my amygdala, which is fear central, to calm down, I can will till the cows come home and the amygdala's just going to keep flashing. And so uh, I, I think it's a really important understanding. And this idea of just say no, uh, if just say no means using my executive frontal cortex, my, my thinking, uh, uh, executing minds to make these decisions, if that's what I'm talking about, I'm doomed to failure. I'm doomed to failure. That does not work. It, it doesn't, uh, craving does not reside in that realm. It reminds me of Albert Einstein when he says, um, when we try to solve a problem at the same level in which the problem was created, yeah. it's like you've at least got to get to the right level. And at least in my mind, biologically, we've got to find skillful means to be able to, to use the frontal cortex in service of, but also to direct it towards really um, addressing what's going on subcortically. Does this make sense, gentlemen? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that makes me think of something that I read just in the last couple of days and yeah. have been exposed to before. This is really the root of mindfulness practice is not a battle to change what's going on there, but simply becoming aware of it. The simple practice is name it to tame it, which is easy to remember and easy to do. Just simply becoming aware of what's going on there. This is a craving. This is a negative state without judging, without condemning oneself often is enough to start to shift that balance between the amygdala running rampant and the prefrontal cortex losing control. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, and and you know, the more that you can name it and be aware of it with mindfulness, starting to make the unconscious processes more conscious, yes, yes, and then you yes. can make conscious decisions about what to do. Yes. But almost by definition, if you're an addict, you you can't do it alone. You know, saying I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and you know, because I love my family and I love my God and I love my country and I love my dog and you know all that, it's not going to work. You know, and 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 then we have to, and of course, the the disease itself is uh, it's a very deceptive. It's like you have this inner evil lawyer who's always trying to convince you to do the absolutely worst thing, you know, and he said, come on, man, you, you ain't no pussy. You can do it. You know, or if that's how, or if he needs to talk to you like a Harvard, you know, uh, whatever voice it needs to manipulate you and go, yeah, I can do it. Bam. You're back on your ass again. It's come one more time, dude, you can do it. Get up. You know, you don't get yeah, you know, that, that voice knows us better than anybody else does. It knows exactly what to say, which is <laughs> it's so insidious. So, um, so yeah, so you, you become, um, or, or just like, you know, you're talking, we're talking about the sky being a metaphor for open spacious consciousness that we, it's always there. And through practice and meditation, uh, we can become aware of it. You know, it's, it's consciousness becoming aware of consciousness, awareness, aware of awareness, you know, that that's one of the things that happens in meditation. And, you know, what if you were just like, I just love it when it's 12 o'clock noon. I do. That's all I love. And I just want to be 12. Come on, son. You know, it's just, it just doesn't work, you know, because it's going to keep going. And then you're like bummed out, you know, for, for, uh, you know, 23 hours and, and, you know, 53 minutes. And it's like, okay, you know, and so that's what the addict does. And you begin to try to, to chase the high, you know, those states, those desired states. And then you have to keep using more, and then the downs become worse. Then you have to use other drugs to kind of get you through this. And then you start working on the cocktail. I can control it. It can't control me. And without knowing, you're just getting your ass kicked. You know, you're just getting taken out. You're getting taken out of the game of life. And you're becoming a huge source of pain and suffering. Anybody you encounter. I mean, you know, I'm talking the latter stages. There's some functional 
alcoholics and people can fake it and kind of make it um, for a long time, but truly their, their, their potential, their relationship with others, what they could have done and everything, even though, you know, that's, it just, it just yeah. doesn't work. It's just tragic. Yeah. John, I'd like to comment here just uh, more personally, if that's all right with the both sure. of you is, is that I know that for me, I, I, my own experience with addiction is an unusual one. Statistically, it began in midlife and there's some very small percentage. I think you even talk about it in your book, John. There's some small percentage of addicts that that's, that that's, right. their, that that's their course of entry, I guess you'd say. But what I want to say is that for years, uh, I was relatively functional. Of course, I would define functional probably more loosely than those that around me. But having said that, but I do remember the phenomenology, as Guy was talking last week, the inner experience of beginning to lose traction in the latter stages of my addiction and, uh, and, and only after I got into recovery did I read about this to understand, I really understood this from the inside, is that the brain, through the various systems that are activated, and we've talked about them and we'll talk about them again, but the, the dopamine system, the opioid system, the self-regulation system, uh, uh, the memory system, all of these things get recruited for the sake of survival. And it sounds like it's poetic or something, except when you're experiencing it, there's a sense that this high, this drug, this, uh, uh, this wanting to avoid feeling so sick, um, all, how, what, however that manifests for the individual addict, all of those are in service of what feels like it's a survival drive. And I would never yeah. have understood that if I hadn't experienced it. So it moved from feeling like it was relatively optional. And again, I'm acknowledging my own denial, but it felt like it was relatively optional and that I was relatively functional until I wasn't anymore. And at that point, it felt like that this kind of survival drive, as the subcortical brain interprets it, it trumped any kind of logic, any kind of cajoling from the outside or from the inside. All those things that you just said, I've got a good Texan inside of me that, that uh, laid it pretty thick on me. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. There was something that was trumping every one of those messages. And it's been very humbling for me. It's enabled me in my work with addicts to totally identify with what it's like. John, I just sat, and Doug, I just sat yesterday with a group of addicts at a local treatment center, and I was in a threesome. There, there was a large group, and we broke into dyads or groups of three. And I was talking to two gentlemen, both in their probably mid to late 20s, both of them parents, talking about their willing to stop using, uh, this would be meth, heroin, very serious drugs, willing to stop using for the sake of their, their youngins, for their children, mm-hmm. and, and taking that as far as you can, just based on sheer gumption, total respect. And they looked at me with tears in their eyes because they hit the wall with that, and they realized cognitively that I'm completely fouling up my child's uh, development by this and could not resist it. That You think about how deep that that survival urge must be to over overshadow the evolutionary drive of taking care of your own brood and taking, yeah. taking, taking care of your own genetic line. And that's the way it goes. These men were crying about it because they realized they're up against something that's way overwhelming. And no matter how strong they are in terms of will, they cannot, cannot deal. You, you can't fight that survival. need. you got to find some way therapeutically, clinically, et cetera, to work that through. But just on my own, it's back to your comment on my own, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I tried, I could not over, overcome this. I needed, I needed medical intervention, psychological intervention, spiritual intervention, yeah. our friendships, et cetera. Just not possible. And I'm utterly convinced of that. Yeah. You know, I started using first as, as a youngster. I was uh, yeah. 13, yeah. 14 years old, as yeah, is fairly common, I understand. Yes, that's more and typical. Yeah. It, yeah. 
was all about changing my state and trying to escape the things that I felt, the voices in my head that were all the time, the, the feeling of not belonging. And yeah. it was hard for me then to, to find the help that I needed and to reach out to the help for the help that I needed uh, to get better because part of the reason I was using in the first place was that disconnection, that, that inability to feel welcome at home, supported, that people had my best interests at heart, that I could really be comfortable with anyone. I was using to change that particular feeling in that particular state, which makes outreach to a group so difficult, which is exactly why it's so important to find the right people in the right community and to embrace it when you do. Yeah. Because there are wonderful people out there who can make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Thank you. Well said, Doug. Well said. And, and getting back to what, what Bob was saying about the survival thing, you know, and this, of course, I started learning this from Dr. Kevin McCauley. And what's his pleasure unwoven? It's just a DVD he did. It's just. It's it's just fantastic. It just hits the and and I I sat at his feet in, in lectures you know over the years, but he talks about how the the amygdala or the reptilian or the the the, the most primitive part of the brain was built so that things that would um, put you in in um, in survival's care would be highly rewarded by these blasts of dopamine and these, these brain chemicals. So if you're having sex, which is necessary to propagate the the species, you know, it's great. Hopefully, you know, if not find somebody else or anyway, I'm not going to get into (laughs) anyway. So, or, you know, if you, you know, you lunge his spear and you go into the mammoth and you know, you hit him in the juggler bean or something and you just say, God, you know, I just, we're going to have all this meat. We're going to survive for two years on all this meat. And, you know, you feel great. Or you're running from, you know, the saber tooth tiger or all of these fight, flight, sex, all of these things, you know, that's why we love sports and we engage our body, our brains get pumped up, you know, and that's, that was built in. So the things that we really needed to do that were really, really important. Eating is another thing to survive. We're rewarded with positive feeling brain chemistry. Now what happens in drug with using drugs that uh, very quickly, they exhaust your natural supply of these good feeling uh, endorphins and, and these good feeling uh, brain chemicals like uh, dopamine, for example, and serotonin, which is dopamine is like the high and serotonin is like, I'm not condoning smoking, by the way, but, you know, the, the, the cliche after sex, it's just, ah, you know, you feel, yeah. empty, you feel great, all that. So uh, we're there for a reason, specific reason. Drugs exhaust those, and then they begin to supply these, these fake uh, reward systems, okay? Fake dopamine, fake uh, neurochemicals. I mean, they're real, but they're not your natural ones. So the only way that you can feel good is if you're using this stuff. And by the way, you're flooded with much more of this stuff. I mean, you know, you put the spike into your vein and things aren't quite the same. You're rushing on your run, you know, to quote Lou Reed. And you're just there. And it's like, and the the reptilian brainstem equates that with survival. That's what you were talking about, Bob. So this thing of getting the spike or snorting or drinking or smoking, however you're ingesting substances or multiple ways you're ingesting substances, becomes more important. The brain says, this is more important than loving my wife, than feeding my dog, than saving for my children, than paying my rent, than paying the mortgage, than showing up at work. Gotta have it, gotta have it, because it's just, and you know, the, 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 the frontal cortex is going, that's bullshit. 
You know, that's, that's not right. Can't, the, the, the reptilian is taken over. All right. And, and, and it just awful. So you can really say that, uh, you know, it starts with this chase for States and then it just becomes this, this, this uh, and our professional zombie here, you know, can uh, Doug, you know, <laughs> really then the latter stages, it's almost a zombie like subhuman type of uh, existence. Yeah. And you just got to eat brains. More brains. Yeah, more brains. <laughs> Uh, we have dessert. I'm tired of it. But anyway, um, you know, it just becomes a horrible, horrible syndrome. Think and about I, this. Think about this, John, in terms of states, uh, uh, in regards to what you're saying, just up the road from where I live is UCLA. And uh, Richard Rawson is up at UCLA, and he's done this research over the last years with BrainScan, looking, uh, looking specifically at dopamine spikes. And so if our normal resting state, like the three of us right now, or he would say are at a one, let's say just that's the baseline level, is that sexual orgasm will double that. Big duh, right? It will, it will double that. And, and, and then he's looked at the influence of other substances. The introduction of cocaine, just looking at the dopamine system, and that's only one of several systems that are involved. It's a big one related to just exactly what you're talking about in terms of survival. Cocaine quadruples the normal dopamine baseline just by introducing them. So you're absolutely right. You've just trumped the basic biological imperative to propagate the species. You've doubled it from a factor of two to now four. So four times the amount of dopamine level. I'll look at addicts early in recovery that I'm meeting with and I'll say, you guys have any idea? Because most of them have been addicted to more serious drugs and serious. It could almost be defined by what we're saying. Heroin is 10 times the level of dopamine. People think, well, doesn't heroin affect the opioid system? Well, all substances affect the opioid system. It's another system in terms of endorphins. This is the dopamine system. Heroin, a, a factor of 10 times your normal baseline. So what hope in hell, I tell them, does relationship or even sexuality, much less any normal reinforcers, whatever they've done before, what hope in hell there is there to compete with that? And then the, the piece de resistance for the meth users in the room. What do you guys imagine? That Richard Rawson has found this in his studies. It's 12 times the, the, the baseline level of dopamine. It completely thrashes the hell out of our normal dopamine system. And basically we're left completely in a survival relationship to whatever it's meth, heroin, you name it. It's pretty sobering stuff. And it lasts, meth lasts yeah. for a long time. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're talking about yeah. 12, 18 hours, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like it burns you up. And then yeah. when, when you run out of the substance, you have no, you have no brain chemistry left. Positive brain chemistry, it's all drained, yeah. and you just feel like you're in your hell. And that's why you know you don't have uh, serotonin, which yeah. allows you to do you know a fine you know musical yeah. moves and all that kind of this stuff. Yeah. And you don't have any more, so you're like you're shaking. It's like God, I gotta do more, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know you're you're drinking the the, yeah. the shaving lotion. I mean, you know, it, it's a level. <laughs> I, I have to tell both of you something. I don't know that we've shared this before, but the first time I did ecstasy, this is however many years ago, and certainly way before I got into recovery. The first time I did ecstasy, I went out to a club and danced all night long. And John and Doug, you both, all three of us are musicians, and you know I'm a drummer. And so the kiss and cousin of drumming is dancing. It's just like, for me, it's like drumming without sticks, basically. So I did that all night long on ecstasy. I thought I was in bliss. I woke up the next day. <laughs> When I finally went to sleep, I woke up the next day. I had never experienced anything like that. From Mount Everest 
to the bottom of the Dead Sea within yeah. a matter of hours. And absolutely, you know, looking at it in hindsight, absolutely no dopamine, no serotonin in Bob Weathers anywhere. It was, and you know what the initial, the initial impulse was? Well, you know what it is. Where can I get more? Mm. Already in one it use, is, in yeah. one use, yeah. where can I get more? Thankfully, I failed to get more that night, but I would have. Already you're in that death grip. Already you're in that death grip. Yeah, yeah I did. I did hair, uh, not heroin. I did cocaine a couple of times in the early yeah. 80s when cocaine yeah. was king. In fact, yeah. I, I went to a DEA training uh, in, in Europe when I was mm-hmm. in the Army. I was an yeah. investigator, military police investigator. And the guy said, you know, this is the best stuff ever. You know, the, the, this is the DEA saying, you know, just harmless and blah, blah. And then we were out in the hall afterwards. Should we do this stuff? I mean, the guy didn't know his yeah. You know, is something from a hole in the ground, right? <laughs> but uh, when I, I never did in the army because I was a cop, but I did experiment a couple of times at parties when I was off the line or, or something, two times after my military service, I was in college and it was like, oh, wow, yeah. I feel intelligent. I feel present. I, I feel good, you know, and it's like, I can never do this again, you know, because it was just yeah. obvious that the attraction was so strong and I had to, you know, I'd smelled I'd smell the smoke of hell and I, 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 I beat a hasty retreat, thank God. But I knew exactly that was a hole that I was going to fall down. And where I was going to school, there was, it was all over the place. So yeah. it would have been really easy. And thank God I knew enough about yeah. uh, addiction through law enforcement stuff at that time. And yeah. I, I'd seen it, you know. One of, my, we, one, of my, one of my two best friends in graduate school went up to Canada for an internship after graduate school. And he called me from Canada and said, Bob, I smoked heroin. He'd never done anything like this before. And, and I said, what was it like? And he said, it was like a thousand orgasms is the way he described it. And he said what you said, John. He said, Bob, I realized that if I ever smoke it even a second time, I'll never stop. He never did. He stopped. He stopped. Yeah. So, Doug, I interrupted you. Sorry. I can play on that as well, actually. It fits perfectly into what I was going to say is that we all want to feel that way and our bodies are designed to feel that way as part of our survival mechanism but as we introduce these substances to stimulate it artificially then the real thing can no longer compare it can't compete with a 10x with a 12x amount of these neurochemicals and as we continue to use of course we stop producing them naturally and those things are no longer as rewarding our receptors get downulated downregulated and that's when things really start to fall off the cliff but since we all want to feel these things, it's important to learn how to stimulate and change the state naturally. And a really important part of that too is realizing that you cannot feel that way all the time, that the cycle, the recovery is just as important and that we have to work with what we are naturally given in order to make the most of those blissful moments, those rewarding moments when they appear without pushing ourselves into a crash all the time as will happen as much as I wish it were otherwise. And probably many addicts can relate. You can't be all gang all the time. The, the no. recovery matters a lot. Yeah. And you know, and kind of moving, I'm glad you said that, Doug, and that's kind that's of moving a, it to the, to the, we're moving the positive um, uh, aspect of it, you know, and we're, you know, these, these drugs are called painkillers, you know, Oxycontin is a huge plague and, and opioids right now and that's kill pain. Damn, and then you know you get addicted, and the pain just increases exponentially. But it's not just. I, I was listening to went back in the Bay Area. Someone says, you know, you just have to learn with the boredom and deal with life as it is, and you can't be happy or have any states. I'm like, well, that is really depressing. <laughs> but you know, there there are there are states of bliss, there are states of flow, there are states of great joy, there are states of deep satisfaction. 
that we can reach. And, and, uh, and, and it, things begin to shift instead of, you know, because, uh, you know, it, in, in addiction, you can, you can feel good by doing bad, basically bad to your body, bad to your family, bad to the world. There's nothing good about taking drugs, but in recovery or in a healthy spiritual life and human life, you have to do good to feel good. You know, you have to treat your body correct. You have to, to find out uh, what your life is about, you know, what your goal is, whom do you serve? Who are my people? What does that mean? What are my gifts that I'm supposed to be manifesting in the world? Do I have the courage and the grittiness, you know, uh, to bring and the humility to get the help I need and support and ask people that are further down the road to help me out and all these things come into play. And then you get, then you begin to get, uh, states that are, that are very positive, but we're not, we're not, um, we're not, going for these states for themselves, states for state's sake, it's states for stage growth. In other words, it's states for, so we really start becoming uh, who we are and we can deliver what we have by, by utilizing these states in a positive way. And we've been talking a lot about flow states and, and the things that happen when we're, we're doing sports or we're working out or we're making love or we're writing, creating, talking. I mean, we've got things that matter, having, you know, these, these powerful conversations and those things are really good and we have to cultivate that. But oftentimes it takes, you have to delay gratification. Okay. You have to work on something, you know, when you start playing the guitar, you're going to suck. You know, it's like, unless you're a bass player, then like, three lessons and you're good to go. Right. <laughs> I'm kidding. Basically, as long joke. as you don't, as long as you don't make a drummer joke. <laughs> right. No, no, there's a bass player joke, but I don't believe it at all. I love bass. Players. Sorry, sir, Paul, you're, you're awesome. Uh, so, um, Anyway, so you have to delay gratification and realize what these things for. And then you start moving into, instead of these counterfeit states of blitz and ecstasy that are so powerful and life crushing into authentic, joy and authentic happiness and the real profound meaning of what it means to be human and what you're here to do collectively and individually as a, as a person. Hmm. One of my, uh, this is, this is not roomy. Let me get a little contemporary here. One of my um, favorite songs <laughs> is uh, by, by Pearl Jam called Unthought Known and not to blow the punchline here. I will post the full lyrics in our Facebook group. If you remember, go check it out. But yeah, good. at the end of the song, he he ends up concluding with this idea of what are you giving, which is exactly what we're talking about here. What are you giving back to the world? And finding that allows us to really experience the life that we are here to live and get the most out of these states in a natural way that, that serves the world and ourselves and can be a wonderful way to help us recover. Um, we find what we were looking for in, in service by giving our gifts exactly like you were saying, John. Yeah. So why do you, why do you, you know, why do you put on the headphones? Why do you meditate? Why do you go to the gym? Why do you do these things? Well, they, well, they're, you know, they have intrinsic value in themselves. You know, they're very powerful. Uh, you know, sometimes meditation, my God, you know, it can be, it can be great. It can be, you know, going into the depth of darkness, you know, it can be, there's many things that arise, but ultimately the practice is to, to, to wake up. Right. And also to clean up in the case. And, and I think in, with I awake technology that we have a lot of the cleaning up. I don't know if you've noticed that Bob and your practice, but it's not just the states of oneness and, and, you know, this kind of awakened state of, Oh, it's not just me, but I am 
truly experientially the ground of deepest source of my being. I am everything. Okay. But, but also it helps you process your wounds and your, your traumas and your, your dumb ideas about yourself and reality and all, you know, whatever you've inherited or built on your own or with help from others, you can let go of that. You can get mindful about it, see it for what it is and, and then release it. So, um, yeah, I would love to uh, get deeper into the shadow work and exploring that, too. I think that's a really important area for us to cover soon because it plays into exactly what we were just talking about. Um, mm-hmm. My New Year's resolution this year has been to clean up, essentially. And that involves, of course, going through my house and getting rid of the physical stuff that I've accumulated over the years. But far more importantly, going into my head and getting rid of the things that I have accumulated over the years that I no longer need. Um because they have a tendency to control us on a very deep and subconscious level when we're not getting there. Uh, iAwake Technologies is an incredible tool for that, um, especially there's one that I just love called uh, Profound Releasing by the hypnotherapist Joseph Kao. And it is all about learning how to locate those things and then release them. It's just excellent. I've been using it at least once a week all year, and it's it's amazing. Good, good for you. Brilliant. Good. Are there any announcements we need to make about anything, um, Doug or Bob? I'd love to. I'd love to follow up, John, on something you said in terms of announcements, and I'm sure that you were going to say this probably too, Doug. Is that we have an online Facebook group that's growing, that really is a place. You know, Doug, you were talking about uh, including the Pearl Jam lyrics uh, online in our community, and you remind me of the value of this growing community where there's a chance to unpack all that we're talking about in these podcasts in uh, in a kind of daily uh, daily uh, encounters online. So I really want to recommend that heartily to anybody that's uh, listening to us and. Uh, Doug, I wonder if you might uh, not only point in that direction, but help explain. I know that we've had a recent shift in terms of the status of our group and how to access it. And frankly, I don't know what to tell people myself. So maybe this will be for my education too. Uh, Well, essentially what we have done is changed our privacy settings in order to help protect the anonymity of our, our members. Before it was a closed group, so you needed your approval to join. Now we have made it a secret group, which means that probably by searching, you're not even able to find it, but none of the members, none of the content, nothing at all is visible unless you have the link. Okay. Um, to find it. So that sounds good. So you're all perfectly protected and anonymous with anything you post in this group. My experience of the community is that there's a lot of respect given for confidentiality. It's a very respectful group. That's part of why we monitor those that join to make sure that the culture can be continued. But I'm really appreciative for the depth. Uh, Doug, I know you and John have both participated. The depth of disclosure and the honoring of that disclosure is really really, uh, really special. I really believe that. Now, Doug, how would somebody go about getting approved to come into our now secret group? Yeah. So since we have changed to secret and you cannot find it by searching, uh, what you want to do is visit integralrecoveryinstitute.com slash community. And we provide the link right there on the page. So if you do that, you can request to join and either Bob or I will approve your membership. That's great. Awesome. That's great. Thank you, Doug. Yeah. Well, shall we call it a wrap, gentlemen? Let's do that. Yes. All right. Yeah. Great, 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 great tape. <laughs> and, and great, great love to everybody out there. We, yeah. you know, so much. We, you know, the, the, our, our community is growing and, uh, you know, anybody shows up right now uh, and doing this is a pioneer. So mm-hmm. uh, we're inventing it. It's evolving as we, we walk the path. So stick with it, you know, work hard, get some grit and get support. Love you guys. Yeah. Thanks, John. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.